Welcome to the Whiteness in America podcast, episode number three. I am Tom Bell, and I'm excited that you are coming back to us. Ah, changes in the air. You may have noticed that we have a new theme, uh, a new intro song, if you will. Well, thanks to my brother, Michael Radke, uh, we have an official music now. He's a gifted musician, a gifted guitarist. And uh, I wrote the original music, and you know it was just kind of a filler until we were able to find a better fit for what the show is and what it could be. And um, he wrote this beautiful, um, I think, um, piece for us to start the show off with and, and do in-between segments. And I'm really touched that he took the time to do it and, and the energy into building it. But not only has the intro changed, you may have noticed that the show has been on an unannounced hiatus. Um, for the last six or seven weeks, and, and there's two reasons for this. Um, I had recorded an interview in between that time uh, with uh, a person by the name of Steve Smith. Steve is a graduate student at the University of Michigan's Gerald Ford School of Public Policy and a member of the Reserves for the United States Coast Guard, and we had a fantastic interview, a great discussion, um, and really awesome. Unfortunately, the technology was not so great, and the, the, the audio just didn't turn out at all. Um, and so, well, because we do the interviews, um, most, of, most interviews are done at distance. I use um, different technology pieces to do that. So that's why some of the quality, even in this upcoming episode, is not always the best. Um, the, the quality with the interview with Steve just wasn't, it wasn't listenable. Um, and that was mostly my fault on my end. I had some issues with my computer. So um, we decided to... Um, Scrap the interview. Um, he he'll be coming on in the future, and so I, I in that time period though I've been reflecting on some things, and I was conducting research for my dissertation, uh, which is now done. I've concluded collecting data, and that was taking up a lot of time. And in that process, I was thinking about where I wanted this podcast to go and what I wanted it to sound like and be like, and how we could be more intentional and engaging about topics. And so with that. I had some time to reflect and I decided to play with the format. And in the past, we've done one-off interviews with people, with special guests. In the future, we'll still have featured guests from time to time or interviews with folks that are writing books or um, scholars or individuals that want to talk about a particular thing in whiteness. But what I think I want to do moving forward, and you'll see today uh, with our guests, is that I'm, I want to do this and do more panel discussions about a focused or narrow topic or topics or current events. And I think that will be a little bit more engaging and a good opportunity for us to really look at and de deconstruct whiteness and the intersectionality with whiteness. Um, so I think that's really important to think about. Um, so the, the today's topic and, and today's episode will feature three scholar practitioners in higher education. And we're gonna be discussing the intersection of masculinity and whiteness. Now, when we initially came up with this topic, we didn't think that this would go the way it did. Initially, we were going to talk a lot about Title IX on college campuses and, and the research on, on sexual misconduct, sexual assault on college campuses. But because of what's going on in the national media with uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh and most recently the President of the United States and his stance um, and, and taking seems to be taking a stance against the Me Too movement, the conversation went there, and it of course went there. So um, we we went that way, and then we also talked a little bit about political nature and teaching, and, and faculty members having politics and teaching, and what what that means. And so um, it was a really really fascinating episode. Uh, we have three guests: Brandon Ice, Gwen Shimmick, and John Gardner, um, and they'll introduce themselves in a moment. So here we go. Onward to the interview.
welcome everybody. I'm really glad that you're you know, you're able to join us today. Uh, we'll do some quick introductions. Um, first, we'll start with John Gardner. John, do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is John Gardner. I'm a white cisgender uh, heterosexual male, uh, and I currently serve as the uh, director of Title IX and training um, at AT Still University, which is a, a osteopathic medical school in Kirksville, Missouri. I've served in that role for all of three days, uh, and previous to that, I was the director of residence life at Truman State for 10 years. Congratulations on your new job, and you're almost John, Dr. John Gardner. Yes, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a dissertation in higher education, and I, uh, my dissertation uh, topic is on uh, Title IX uh, policy uh, and intersectionality, kind of looking at how that impacts uh, participants uh, who experience that policy. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, John. Absolutely. Good evening. Uh, my name is Brandon Ice. I'm the Title IX coordinator at Harvey Mudd College in Southern California. It's part of Claremont Colleges. I have been in my role since February of 2018. Um, I identify as a biracial black and white cisgen male, um, but I will also add, because I believe it's apropos to the topic today, that um, hypermasculine is part of how I was raised. Um, and who I grew up to be as I played college football and part of the locker room uh, talk and bro culture, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, so I just want to put that out there, uh, out front. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Brandon, uh, you and I did some work on uh, uh, racial humor and uh, dissecting that in the role of, of race and racism back in the day. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. So I'm really glad that you're able to join us today. For this. Sure. Uh, my name is Gwen Schimek, and I serve as Dean of Students at Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. Um, I've been in that role, this is my fourth year, my eighth year with the institution. Um, prior to that, was working primarily in um, Catholic higher education at single gender institutions. Um, I use she, her, hers pronouns, and um, I am a white female. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody. This is a new venture for this podcast. So for those of you that have taken the chance to listen to us in the past or listen to me in the past, it's been interview, single one-on-one -on -one interviews. And um, I decided that in order to kind of be a little bit more purposeful in this, I wanted to narrow the focus, but spread the conversation out. So um, you're the, the, the trial run on this. So hopefully it, it's good. Although I, I imagine the, the, the talent that's on this uh, on the call right now will be awesome. Um, so I don't know if you all know this, but according to the president, men are under attack. Um, I, I, I guess we'll just start there because I think that that's an interesting part about, um, you know, where, where we're at. I didn't really intend on this discussion. I don't think John's intention initially when he said he would be interested in doing this particular topic was to talk about President Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. But I think it's, it's a visible representation of the intersection of masculinity and whiteness on public display. And um, I just want to get your thoughts initially on this kind of whole carnival that we're a part of on a daily basis um, that is kind of uh, out there in the public. So are men under attack? Um, and, it, and, and is it a particular uh, segment of men that are under attack? Well, I mean, it, it appears to me that men who sexually assault other people seem to be being, being held accountable for their actions. So if that's under attack, then maybe maybe that's the case but you know if, if you don't sexually assault people then you'll probably 
be okay in this in this era. Um, I think it's it's really phenomenal that someone would say something like that. I mean, it's just pretty crazy, given all the data we have about sexual misconduct and how um, prevalent it is. We have studies that indicate sixty to seventy percent of women. Uh, particularly white women in these studies uh, have experienced sexual misconduct of some kind in their lives. Uh, so when you talk about men being under attack, I just, it's just ridiculous given what the numbers of some of these studies say um, in terms of once you educate people about what they're experiencing, the, the numbers are just ridiculously high um, in terms of the climate that we're in, the climate that our society allows to be perpetrated around sexual misconduct. So, I mean, it's just a, it's a crazy and ridiculous statement. I would add um, that in addition to men itself, I would say manhood and masculinity and what we grow up accustomed to and entitled to may be under attack. And so what really is put out on display in these proceedings are the normalized behaviors that now People are saying, that's not appropriate. That's not okay. That crosses the line. But for us, it's been a part of, this is what it means. This is what I'm, this is how I'm supposed to be. And I think that is under, under attack. Yeah. But is under attack even the right way to frame it? Because, I mean, that would seem like it, it was, it's a, a bad thing that, that we're questioning or challenging that hegemonic process and culture that kind of exists that's pervasive in school systems and the workplace and your local grocery store and and in the locker room i mean you know brandon you brought up earlier the locker room aspect and i don't want to jump fully ahead although my brain can't be linear so but you know the the entire president's state the, the current president's statement when he was a candidate was basically they were letting him go for making comments that were degrading to women because it was locker room banter, right? And I think and people kept circling back if, if, if it was Barack Obama that would have said something like that, all hell would have broke loose. Um, you know, you would have had impeachment hearings and you would have had, he never would have been a candidate for president, but you have a white man who's been an entitlement and who has, as we've learned uh, today, um, basically is a beneficiary of tax fraud. Um, that has accumulated wealth over time. So I just, I wonder, you know, is it really attack? Is that the right way to phrase it? I mean, I know I said it, but now I'm challenging that. I, I guess I would push back on, I, I feel like anytime something that is the dominant narrative in our society is challenged, um, the immediate reaction from whoever is in power is that that it feels as though they're under attack. And I think we've seen that through racial lenses, we're seeing it through gendered lenses, we see it through um, certainly class, related to class. I think there's oftentimes t um, the narrative that gets built when we're starting to challenge those norms is one of being under attack or being under, um, you know, not not being part of the the conversation, and so I think that that's, it's not surprising for this language, and it's not attack. Also, is a masculinized term. Oftentimes, you know, it's 
something that we're that it has power associated with it. It has um, a fierceness. It has a, a all of this language. And so I think that when we think about that, and we think about when we're using war-related rhetoric, right? It's oftentimes um, meant to um, connect men with other men um, and leave women out of that conversation again, or non uh, non gender normative folks. And so, um, just trying to think about the ways in which that language gets used is um, is for is oftentimes when folks are feeling as though their power and privilege is being challenged. I didn't, I didn't even think about it from a, using world language, even though that's what it is. And that's really interesting because that, I think, gets back to some of this, as Brandon pointed out earlier, the hyper-masculine culture that we kind of tend to have, have thrive and, and thrive in in, this, in the United States. Um, you know, and, and, and if you read certain headlines today, it seems like in the, <laughs> There's a narrative being painted that the president of the United States is challenging the Me Too movement, which I think is a fascinating thing in all of itself. Um, I'm not really sure if he's doing that per se, but it sounded like it last night when he was mocking um, Dr. Ford and kind of doing what he does when people are in oppressed positions and have oppressed positionality in our country. Um, he uses his pulpit to mock and to degrade and to bring them down. And he uses his power and advantage to bring himself up or appease his masses, which I think is fascinating. Well, I think, I think one of the things that um, we see with sexual misconduct, but I think you're, you're seeing it in several other settings here is this, there's this concept I found in my research called homosocial environments where there are environments where everybody's the same. And so I think you can t just tie this into the locker rooms a little bit situation and, I think when you look at the pictures of uh, Kavanaugh, we want to tie this back to him, where he's, you know, this white male at a school with probably a lot of other white males. All the photos I saw were all white guys that I've seen of him. They're on a football team in this homosocial environment. So when you have all these people that are all the same in these environments, um, especially when it's all male, and you can look at, at the Senate and Judiciary Committee or whatever for the Republican side, all those various things, you, you create this environment that is just uh, – that is focused on a what's called a gender gender role conflict around the concept of masculinity uh, when it's an all male environment where you have this really narrow view of masculinity, um, which leads to, according to several researchers, you know this, this sense of violence, uh, homophobia, alcohol abuse, and sexual aggression, uh, which I think is kind of what we see in some of these scenarios, and so. Um, you know, when you see what happens with Kavanaugh with alcohol, when you see what happens with, with the folks who was hanging out with, it's not surprising given what the research says that some of these uh, behaviors would have occurred, uh, uh, rape and, and other sort of associated things. I wonder, though, adding the intersection of, of race into this, you know, one could argue that race is not a factor in the sense because Clarence Thomas wasn't held to the same, I think, level of public discourse. Um, that is happening right now and, and as a as a black or african-american man you know he didn't have that side of sort type of discussion and i i don't know I, but one of the things I, I think is interesting is there's a maybe this is my inappropriate leveling of this there's a difference between um what he did which was sexual harassment versus sexual assault and and i think the the the, the layering of that might be part of the 
reasoning maybe why that was, or maybe there wasn't so much, or maybe we were too ingrained in um, letting things pass back when he was um, being nominated. I think it was 27 years ago. I mean, I'll throw that out there. It was how many years ago? 27? Yeah. Oh, it feels like yesterday. I was just 10. (laughs) (laughs) For for me, what what we saw in, in Kavanaugh's response, the language he used, the evasiveness, the angry emotion, um, put on full display whiteness at its finest. And how dare you? I got into Yale. Not only did I get into Yale, I got into the best law school in the land. Look at me. Not addressing questions. It was just it was just odd. I mean, it was it was great because for so many people, it's hard to 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 point to what is whiteness. And so, when you try to have a discussion about the social constructs, for some people, if they're the dominant culture, if they're the dominant identity, it's oftentimes hard for us to identify and say, "Oh, yeah, I do that." But right there, it is on full display. Um, go, go and watch, and and you'll see what we're talking about. Um, so I, I thought it was. Yeah. Okay. yeah, his statement was, I did not receive any help. I worked my butt off, you know, and not recognizing the fact that he went to an elite preparatory school that mm-hmm. um, his parents and he had both socioeconomic affluence and and his white currency um, that allowed him and privileged him to getting into certain spaces and, and having an opportunity. I think you're right. I think that that was a you're right, Brandon. And for, my, for me, that was a, a very visible point of whiteness. So I think that's a good, um, good catch. One other thing that comes up with that too is that um, there's a, a concept that I've just recently kind of learned of uh, from um, Dr. Nolan Cabrera, who's an associate professor at the University of Arizona. And he talks about the concept of white immunity um, as opposed to white privilege. And he kind of says it as this. Uh, thus, it is not as much whites are raised or privileged by racism, but rather that people of color are precluded from equitable treatment. It is for this reason that the comedian Paul Mooney um, continually refers to whiteness as the complexion of protection for the collection. Therefore, uh, and this is what uh, Cabrera states, I argue that racial justice educators should start using white immunity to more accurately engage and describe what has been known as white privilege. White immunity means that people of color have not historically and are not contemporarily guaranteed their rights, justice, and equitable social treatment. However, white people are because they have protection from this, this, this disparate treatment. And I think that gets to the concept of where Don Jr. says, you know, I fear for my sons, right? He made that comment, I fear for my sons. and I, feel, I fear more for them because I feel like they're going to get unfair treatment. And I think he, we have protected white folks for a long time. And if you look at this, you know, John brought up the Senate Judiciary Panel. Um, it, it, you had 11 white men who, make, who, who are using rules made by old white men to protect another white man and, and to use that to obfuscate and to use that to not dig into or challenge that. And now that's being taken away. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like I have two, I, have a, I don't have two, I have two kids. Uh, two sons. I have a, a son, and I, I'm not personally worried for his well-being moving forward in this. Like, I don't think that that's something that's in my forefront. Maybe I'm being naive in that, but that's just I don't. 
like my conversation with him would be very different than, Oh, be careful. But I think that's also because I'm white. And I think if, um, you know, I think that there's some layering of that. If maybe I, I wasn't white, maybe that would look different. But I know John, you have a, a son. Do you, do you feel fear for him? Well, no, I feel a great amount of fear for my daughter. Um, right. I don't feel fear for my son. Um, uh, you know, I think the, the only, the only thing I fear for my son is that because he is white and part of white culture and we live in a very white and rural place that he, I will not be able to successfully fight against that in terms of how I raise him and how I explain to them how the world works because the world tells them a different story. But no, I don't fear for my son. He will, he will no doubt be fine. Uh, get all of the benefits and immunity or privileges, whichever term we're using. Um, every white male gets. Brandon, I know you had some thoughts on this. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I went through several years of my life when I didn't want to have kids for this very reason. Um, so yeah, I do fear for my boy. And you know, I'll be, I'll be honest. Yes, a large part of my fear comes from, comes from their race and their gender is black men, and we can't separate the two. But as it relates, in the context of Title IX and healthy relationships, as a father, I have to role model and I have to teach um, and things like that, but it's difficult. It's difficult to put aside the norms that we learned in middle and high school that parents aren't a part of, the locker room, the pressure to fit into that space and have it not influence and impact your relationships with other people. So I'll use, let's say, because I already disclosed hypermasculine, former football player. When I was within those football clothes and the football team, it was hard for me then not to, as Jackson Katz points out, it's hard for me not to put on the mask. Hmm. And not to do the thing, even if I didn't want to do it, even if I didn't believe in it, it was hard for me not to do those things. So um, it's a different spin on certainly on what the president's son was talking about. Yes, I, but I fear that my boys will get caught up. Hopefully it's not as strong, but will get caught up and do things that they did not learn at home that they weren't supposed to do. I mean, pros of not having kids, right? <laughs> right. You don't have to. You, you worry about other people's children. I worry all the time about other people's children. And I think um, kind of reflecting on what Brandon was just talking about, there's so many, and I'll talk about men specifically at this moment, there's so many men who I know who on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so, like, appreciative of, who they are and what they bring and when um when we're group mentality and get into groups of folks um behavior changes 110 percent and no longer performing just for a conversation with me they're performing for everyone around them on how they think they're supposed to be performing and these these are my assumptions but it's also backed by research right um and so one-on-one -on -one, Every one of the men who are part of fraternities, athletic teams, different different groups are generally 
who I would describe as good guys, um, and yet when there's something that happens in that group, and I'm not saying boys will be boys, and I'm not writing any of that off, um, but I think we also have a lot of work to do societally and to um, to break down those group identities as well as these individual pieces. I don't doubt that um, that they know what's right and what's wrong, but there comes a time when there's um, some amount of pressure to behave in a certain way uh, that then is taken out on others um, in ways that I don't think is appropriate. So. Mm. And let, let me add this, and, and here's the reason why I think that's so important to, to Gwen's point and to what I've been saying. The college camp, the sexual assaults that are happening on college campuses are far and away fewer of the boogeyman hiding behind the bushes with the predatory behavior. They've identified someone, much like you've seen in Iowa. They, they've stalked them, they, and they know where they're going to be, and they're going to snatch them, grab them, and then sexually assault them and, and, and do worse. Much fewer of those instances than the blurred lines, the taking advantage of, the uh, constant asking, which turns into coercion and, and pressure, where the gentleman, the male student more times than not, up to 90% more times than not, thinks that they're doing what they are supposed to be doing in order to get to yes, not realizing or otherwise impaired or otherwise not taught that, hey, just, you should have chilled, you should have backed up a long time ago, but that's not in what it means or how I've been raised to be. So that's why I think it's really important because it's like talking about the, the active racist who puts a burning cross on your yard. That's not really happening these days. You know, it's the David Dukes. It's the savvy business person who, you know, that we saw in American History X. And that's what we're talking about and why it's so important because the impact is still tremendous. Well, there's there's some research out there that, you know, when you're talking about the coercion and things like that, that a lot of men only see consent as a, they only think about it as a way of how do I get to sex? That's, that's the only way they think about consent. And then, I think the, the other thing, you know, taking this back to whiteness is that then the consequences when somebody does commit sexual assault, there's so many studies out there talking about how people perceive the accused black perpetrator versus the accused white perpetrator and what they what what decisions they make about guilt or innocence, what decisions they make about sentencing and things like that. And consistently study after study demonstrates that the white perpetrator is given a break on either the guilty or innocence or definitely a break on the sentencing. And so you see that uh, coming back time and time again on these things. We're bringing, that, bringing race back into this picture as well. And I'm not familiar with the, the data and the research on the sexual assault, so the three of you can educate me on that. But I think my understanding is, and this is maybe where I'm wrong, that a majority of the the alleged perpetrators on a college campus are white men. Is that accurate? If not, a hugely disproportionate disproportionate number. I think I think the research will show the perpetrators are of similar uh, racial 
background of the victim survivors, the vast majority of okay. the research is going to be on white women. And so that's what you'll see. I, I, would, I would argue you're right, but I think the research, what the research shows is that the, the racial, the, usually a racial, racial match between victim survivor and perpetrator. Well, I guess I would add to that that um, white folks are also taught to trust authority, right? That there's, that if a white victim, a white survivor goes forward complainant, in my terminology, comes forward and reports that the system is going to um, work on their behalf and is going to, they're going to get a fair share in that process. Um, and I think that uh, complainants of color aren't necessarily taught that they're going to, survivors of color are not taught that the system is gonna work for them. That is not a lesson that they've learned in the past. And so, I think there's a reluctance perhaps to support to report. There's a reluctance to report no matter what. I would only I would posit that that reluctance is increased for um, for folks of color to come forward and report that this crime has happened or that this situation has happened. And so um, I think that that also helps inform the data and inform the ways that we understand um, the statistics on college campuses. Is it also possible, and again, and this is conjecture on my part, to think about it from the stance of those that do research. So you're thinking those have access to do research and have the privilege of doing research. Often, you know, we have more PhDs and more faculty and more people conducting research who are white. And so folks that are white tend to center their research on people that are like them. And so the centering of the stories of people of color when it comes to sexual assault may not be something that's in the forefront, right? So John, you did a huge meta-analysis study. I think you used a lot of data intersectionally in trying to get at, you know, the stories that were untold, even though you're using outdated quantitative statistic measures. Um, <laughs> Uh, to do that, but I mean, I, I think it would be interesting to look at if we started to center the research on um, uh, folks of color who were um, who were uh, survivors. Um, what what that narrative would look like if it would be different? Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, just to uh, piggyback on what Gwen said, I mean, the the research I did, I had about 50,000 50, participants over over five years. Um, and when you looked at the reporting in particular by, and I was, I was using an intersectional approach, so you'd look at, you know, uh, different racial identities, different gender identities, different sexual identities, um, and, and, and put them in some different social locations, such as a, a, a black gay man, for example, um, and you would look at reporting that there was while my, my research, the way I did the, the analysis, is not your outdated uh, quantitative, thank you very much, Tom, uh, but some critical quantitative analysis. Um, and what you see pretty consistently with, with what I found, which can't be generalized beyond my population, um, was that uh, minoritized populations consistently responded uh, less positively to policy than uh, privileged or dominant populations. And so uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's what you would expect, unfortunately, but it just hasn't been done before uh, in the research that, that I've read. So. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back 
with our discussion with our three panelists. Currently, Whiteness in America does not have any sponsors, but if you or you know of anyone who is interested in advertising on Whiteness in America and who is wants to be part of our team, please contact me at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. But in the meantime, since we don't have sponsors, I'm going to do plugs for various things. And one of the things that I think is interesting about choosing to do this podcast and doing a plug or talking about another something, a critical issue that came up is having the ability to um, promote books or promote other folks that are doing this work. But one of the things that I think is important to think about, I, I work in Flint, Michigan. I work for the University of Michigan Flint. And, and, and I still want to bring up to the fact that we are still having issues with water. The United Way is a great organization that is trying to support some work that's happening in Flint. And an example of what they're doing is when the water crisis happened in Flint a few years ago, the state of Michigan was shipping in via semi-truck 11 to 15 semis a day of water. Today, because of the efforts of the United Way, even though it's just a small amount, we're still getting water in. But the, the, the disparity between what we're getting now compared to what we got when the crisis initially happened is significant. We get 11 to 15 semi-trucks a month. And it, this work in, in, in providing support and in getting resources to the residents of Flint is important. So one of the organizations I'd like to promote and push a little bit on this end, and I know that there's some issues potentially with the United Way, but um, I think the, the work that they're doing to try to uplift the people of Flint and at least provide um, drinking water um, is, is a good thing. So if you have an opportunity, um, contact someone, reach out, and see if you can help support our residents in Flint, Michigan. And now, back to our show. So, I guess, is, you know, looping this back, you know, you hear a lot of times that it's not what we want, but it's what we need or who we are. I, I would argue, and maybe this is my lack of hope, um, but is Kavanaugh not what we want, but who we are as a culture? It, is that re- is that is his what we saw on display? You know, a lot of people say Donald. Tr- you know, when Donald Trump goes overseas, this is not indicative of who the United States is. Judge Kavanaugh is not indicative of who the United States is, and I would argue they are exactly who we are. They are exactly what we what we think we are or what we what we actually are in reality but not who we believe we are um and i think you know we we are a society that has developed a racial caste system that goes unnoticed and unrecognized and uncalled we are a system that has privileged and given men access and men advantages and created hostility for folks that don't identify as men um in all environments um, and, that, and that list goes on to other, I think, minoritized identities. Um, and I think what you saw and Brandon talked about it, like that was, the, in my mind, the personification of really who we are as a society. And the rallying behind that is just fascinating to see. You have people saying, you know, there was a kid. And I would call him a kid because he looked like a college student. He was being interviewed. At, um, 
And it was basically, he said, well, I don't really care that he did it because of my, my interest is Roe v. Wade and I want Roe v. Wade overturned. And as long as he's the person that does it, I don't really care what he did when he was in high school. And, and I just think that's a really interesting, I mean, that's a, where are we? And what does that mean about where we're, where we're moving towards in society? So maybe that's too negative for a, a Wednesday night, but that's, I don't know, Brandon, you rubbed off on me. I'm sorry. I have no hope anymore. <laughs> if there's any optimism on this panel, it didn't come from me. Um, no, I, this, this is not a surprise. What, what, what is, I think you're right. I think it is indicative of who we are as a country. Um, I think Trump and now Kavanaugh and some of these others have given voice to sections of the population that which I've not interviewed, interacted with, uh, and worked purposefully not to interact with. So, um, you know, we talk about the bubbles and, and my bubble was trying to avoid folks like that, but that you still see people celebrating them day in and day out, I think is um a level of validation i mean i just saw a woman a mom and her two daughters this was up in your neck of the woods glenn uh minnesota or wisconsin all the same thing it's not the same thing but they're out there but she was on the news and she was like uh what's the big deal everyone you know and her daughters are right behind her shaking her head like yep yep it's okay and it was just crazy so that's yeah, I think it is a I think it is a microcosm of who we are. Um, but that's not surprising to some of us that this is our this is our lived experience. So let me ask the three of you this as the experts in this. Obviously, outside of me, I'm not an expert on this. You all work in relationship to Title IX. What are the implications for what we're seeing in the national discussion on this? I think we're about to get some new regulations. And uh there, there's an interesting article I read recently about uh, the comments on uh, some of the regulations or the, the changes that DeVos wants to make. And I think 99 or 99.5% of the comments were supportive of the Obama era regulations. Uh, and it won't matter. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, DeVos is going gonna, is gonna, to um, make the choices that, that she's going to make on that uh, regardless. And so, you know, we talk about having this comment period on policy created at the federal level, which is where my research is, and it's, it's irrelevant. And so I think what we'll see is that we're going to see for our work, we're going to have to do some things differently that are going to require protection of accused um, in ways that are probably going beyond a simple due process concept. Um, and... Uh, I think that will be interesting to see what those specifically come down as, but that, I mean, that, that I think is going to definitely impact our work. I think one other thing I'll say is I think an interesting thing about this is where we have like Trump and Kavanaugh where everyone says it's okay. But then we also have instances where other public figures, especially celebrities uh, lose jobs, things like that sort of immediately. And so there's this other conversation that's being happen happening outside of government that is, um, an interesting part of this as well. I think it gets back to as well. I, you know, John, you bring up a good point of having to take care of those that are accused more so. Um, and you know, we have a history in this country of not recognizing or acknowledging those that have experienced trauma 
And I think that that's what we're seeing with this on, on a national display is that you had a woman who had to go out and relive her trauma in a, in front of billions of people. And then that gets mocked by our national, our national figure, um, the president of the United States. And I think that that just is an interesting message about how we care or don't care about people that have experienced trauma. And, and, and when you think about marginalized or minoritized populations that have experienced both systemic and personal individualized trauma, dominant narrative, dominant culture doesn't care because it doesn't necessarily see it. And I, and I think that that's where I saw some of that intersection too. I've just finished reading a book called iGen. Um, I highly recommend it for anyone who works on a college campus. Um, and the book talks about a, a number of different topics, one of which is this current generation of college undergraduate, traditional age undergraduate students um, and how they identify thoughts of safety um, and part of our conversation collectively as a country has gone from physical safety to also now including emotional and mental safety. And in the ways that we've sometimes had that conversation, we have um, not clarified that a challenging of your understanding or your belief is not creating an unsafe environment. And we need to spend some time um, re-centering re that safety does not mean disagreeing. Um, there are times when your emotional mental safety um, are certainly challenged. And I think that, that that's something that we need to also stay attuned to and not let go of. Um, but when it comes, and I think that this is, I guess I see this across racial lines when students tell me that they are not feeling safe in the classroom, um, that it doesn't necessarily always have to do with political ideology. Um, it doesn't have to always do with comments that come from faculty or comments that come from other students. Um, I think I, I, I hear these frustrations, concerns, feelings of unsafety from students across the board. And so I think that that's one level of it. Um, but I still, I, I guess I don't disagree that anytime that um, someone who's in the majority, the societal majority, when their understanding, beliefs, whatever are challenged, there's a, there's a sense of lack of safety, which goes back to our very original conversation about being attacked and and that's how that might feel to them. Um, whether those feelings are always legitimate, I think is uh, is another conversation. And Any closing thoughts or last comments? Earlier uh, when I talked about rhetoric um, around masculinity, if anybody's super interested in following up on that, there's a great book called Studs, Tools, and the Family Jewels, Metaphors Men Live By. And I'd encourage folks to take a look at that if you're interested in that sort of academic rhetoric. Um, I'll just say one of the things about policies around um, this kind of work is that um, there's sort of a neoliberal approach that one size fits all for policies. And it's really, it, it's really failing us um, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, just an example of that, uh, 
this researcher did a study of the Not Alone Report, which was a very, you know, Not Alone Report uh, around sexual misconduct that the White House put out to try to educate people on what was going on and what were best practices and things like that. Um, Not Alone Report and the other things they cited within that report did not mention race, except to say when you do a uh, campus climate survey, you should collect demographic data. Mm. Um, you know, and so I think there is around uh, particularly topics of sexual misconduct, but probably around you know masculinity in general. There's lack of concept around race, and I think um, it is um, a great failure of our policies to not take those things into account. Um, and we'll, we will continue to cycle through this like we have if we don't um, adjust uh, how we respond to these issues from a from a policy perspective. Yeah, my closing remarks have to do with uh, Kavanaugh, and I think Obama did Obama did a great job with the guidance in helping people feel more confident in the procedures in place, the grievance procedures, and willing to come forward. And I think what we're seeing, the divorce, of course, that leaks language, the um, the pullback of the two of the two dear colleague letters, and now the Kavanaugh. I think that is going to be so chilling to those who have gone through uh, sexual assault to really second guess and question. And I don't think I want to. I don't think I want to go through that. I don't think I want to come forward. And it's really a shame. It's really a shame if uh, if we in any way, shape, or form revert back to and don't continue the progress we've been making with folks getting support that they need instead of having to deal with it on their own, let alone me holding people accountable side, you know, um, just having to deal and manage on their own is just really unfortunate. I want to thank my three panelists, Dr. Gwen Shimmick, soon to be Dr. John Gardner and Mr. Brandon Ice for joining me today. What a great discussion we had. What a great show. Um, I'm really excited about the new format and the new change. As always, if you have questions, comments, or feedback for other topics or ideas, uh, please see our website, whitenessinamerica.com. You can email me at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at DisruptWhiteness, and that's one S on the end of whiteness. That's DisruptWhiteness on the Twitter Uh, I look forward to your feedback, your comments, and thoughts on this as we move forward. Um, One of the conversations that we had that I didn't end up including in the podcast, because I think it's actually going to be a a focus and a show in itself, and it came up in conversation at work today for me, is this concept of political ideology and politics in the classroom. And I often come from a standpoint of you can't separate your bias, you can't be apolitical, so instead of hiding it as a, as a faculty member or as a student or as a colleague, I think we need to own it, recognize that that's the lens that we use, and have that be part of the discourse. And you had heard Gwen talk a little bit about that. It came up in conversation, and I ended up cutting that piece out. But I think that's going to be an episode in of itself coming up soon. If you have ideas for other, or other content or other shows, please let me know. Thanks for sticking with us. And remember, you cannot be neutral in this. There is no neutrality in this. If you are neutral, you are part of upholding the status quo. 
So um, discuss, um, dissect, disrupt whiteness. Do it regularly. Challenge the hegemony. Challenge the status quo. Until next time.